Turn over then, and we are in Matthew 26 as we continue our exposition through this gospel, this glorious picture of the greatness of our Christ. And our text this morning provides a really stark contrast, namely between two people, a contrast between what they think about Jesus, either how much or how little they value him, how much or how little they esteem him. And it's evidenced in how differently these two persons treat Jesus. It shows what they really think about him. You get a sense for how someone or how much someone values something by how he treats it. So, for example, you can see that contrast in my own life as I have treated different cars that I've owned quite differently over time. My first car was this little truck my dad had given to me. It was used and it had been his for years and he passed it down to me. I prized it at first for like a week, I think, and then you know, got some scratches, those blasted parking garages with those poles that you can scrape against. Not that that happened, but uh, it became then my beater truck, you know, so it got some more dings, and I didn't clean it out much. I even failed to change the oil after some time. By the way, that's a horrible idea. And so I paid the price, but honestly, I didn't value it very much. So when I even lost the truck, it was really not of much concern. Fast forward to my latest ride. I paid real money for that about a year ago. And uh, it was a car I really wanted, and it was a manual, by the way, which is awesome. And I constantly baby the thing. I mean, as people ride in my car and they eat food in there, which I urge them not to, but on necessity, you know how it goes. The first thing I do when I get home, I get out the mini shop vac and vacuum up all the crumbs. I baby this car because I really value it. You can tell what I think of each of those respective cars by how I treat them. Well, now to turn to our text, Matthew turns our attention and says, well, how do you value Jesus? What is your estimation of Jesus Christ? Because understand, your estimation of him can be seen in how or how much you spend your life to honor him. Looking at your life, what is Jesus worth to you? That's the word for us this morning. Your estimation of Jesus is seen in your life seen in the life that's poured out to honor him or is not, poured out to other things, your own agenda. So as you look at your life, just take, a, take stock this morning. Just take a moment, take a deep breath and, and look at your life and be honest and say, what can you say about Jesus looking at my life? Is he a treasure or is he a trinket? Is he an add-on or is he my prize? Looking at your life, what is Jesus worth? Now, we know that the, the right answer is, well, of course, he's our everything. He is our savior. He's our deliverer. He, he's our refuge, as we've been praying this morning. He is everything to us. Well, is that seen in our life? Can you look at my life and make that conclusion that Jesus is my everything? It's evident in the way I live. Well, so we want to raise our estimation of Jesus this morning in our heart so that it comes out in the way we live our life. And so we have three directives in our text this morning that would raise our estimation, raise our love for Jesus so that our lives would get lived out in such a way that you would see at least something closer to how valuable Jesus is. We want our lives to demonstrate Jesus is a treasure. Well, here are three commands that serve those ends. And the first is this. If you're going to raise your estimation, your love of Jesus, that it would come out in your life that he is a treasure first, you need to see his plan to spend himself for you. How are you going to raise your love for Christ? Study, look at, and that's what we're going to do over these next three chapters, Lord willing, to see his plan to spend his life for you. Verses 1 to 5. Matthew, as a gospel writer, has taken particular effort 
to transmit down to us our Lord's teachings. Of all the gospel writers, he has the, the longest record of extended teachings of Jesus. Think the Sermon on the Mount or what we just finished in chapters 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse. This extended Jesus' longest teaching recorded in the gospels about the time of the end. But as we then make a close on chapter 25 and turn the page, so to speak, we now pick up back with the narrative, with the story, with the historical account of our Lord's life. And from there, we are now coming to the climax. Some have rightly said that Matthew's gospel has a really long introduction. It's chapters 1 to 25, because he's all been working up for these last three chapters. Really, it's the heart of the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for our sins and was buried and rose from the dead. It's all been working up for this point. And that's fitting because this is, there is no more significant day or days in all of history than these. We do well to give attention to them. These days, as God's plan to save His people comes to a culmination, as the God who came down as a man to die as a man, to die for our sins, to die our death. This is the topic that we see as now we turn the page so clearly and look at chapter 26. Matthew then resets the stage. He reminds us of our Lord's mission, what he's here to do, and now we see when he's going to do it. Let's find this. Let's look at verses 1 to 2 to start. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know, or he could translate that, know, That after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now, we've been rehearsing this as we've been going through Matthew's gospel. But this mission that Jesus has been talking about, this so widely diverges from what anyone expected from the Messiah, even for his closest disciples. Yet, Jesus tells them just flatly, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die there. This does not seem like the message of a hopeful leader who's starting a revolution. This doesn't seem like the message of, that would be the dawn of a king's new reign and his rule and subjugation of Israel's enemies. Not at all. This seems hopeless from an earthly perspective. But more than this, Jesus even predicts not only that he's going to die, but he speaks of his very method of death, crucifixion. The Son of Man, he says, will be delivered up to be crucified. And here's the great irony in what so confounded the Jews or any that looked on. This means he's going to die. And he's going to die at the hands of those the Jews hoped he would conquer, you see. That's clear just by mentioning crucifixion. He's not going to conquer. He's coming to be conquered. Because understand, the Jews, as much as they now hate Jesus, they could not execute anyone because of Roman occupation. And yet, we see the Jews aren't going to be the one to execute him. The Romans somehow are going to get their hands on Jesus and dispose of him in the cruelest, deliberately excruciating, most Roman way possible, crucifixion. And this is what Jesus says. But to the careful listener, those of us who have been reading Matthew's gospel, those who have been trekking with Jesus throughout his ministry, this shouldn't be a surprise of any kind. He's laid out for his disciples repeatedly these very truths that he's coming to die. This is his mission. He told them so clearly, first off, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, when we heard that the Son of Man, again in reference to himself, 
must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. Again, he rehearses the same thing in the next chapter, in chapter 17. And then even with greater specificity, in Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, he even foretells that he's going to be given over to the Gentiles and be crucified. What he announces at chapter 26, verse 2, is nothing new. He said this repeatedly. What's the difference? Well, only now they're actually here in Jerusalem. They are on the cusp of these events that he's been speaking about. He's been telling them the what, but now he tells them the when, and he tells them the when is basically right now. Verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. It's going to happen in just two days, right at the height of the Passover festival. Jesus is saying, that's the plan. That's my plan. But the Jewish leaders, those who want Jesus dead, have a very different plan. Look at verses 3 and 4. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. So I said the plan's entirely different. Maybe that's not quite the case. Yes, they still want to kill him. They still want to put him to death. They want to have him killed. But the thing is, not yet. Not this week. Not now. Not here. Any time but now. Verse 5. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. You see, Jerusalem during festivals like this, it would swell to five times larger in population than it normally would be as Jews from all over the Mediterranean world were coming to worship at the temple here at the Passover. And so around a feast day like this, religious fervor would be up, spirits would be high, zealots would be rowdy. All of these factors would prove it's something like gasoline-soaked kindling, just waiting for any little outcry as a match to just set the city ablaze with riots and rebellions and outcries. And the Jewish leaders... As they saw it, the stewards of the nation of Israel, they could not tolerate that for a moment. They were so fearful of that, fearful of rebellion, outcries, because of the Roman retribution. And we know this. We know this from John chapter 11. In John 11, we get insight in precisely what were the fears there of the Jewish leaders. Why were they so up in arms, so to speak, so concerned about what Jesus was doing? Well, see, they were very practical. They were very pragmatic. And so we hear about their own plot to kill Jesus that notes this. This is John 11, verse 48. They said, if we let him, Jesus, go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And here's the problem. The Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. This is what they're afraid of. That is, all of these people come to start worshiping Jesus, believing in Jesus, following Jesus. The Romans are then going to come in and wipe us out. They're going to destroy the temple, and they're going to kick us out of the land again. This is going to be exile all over again. See, the Romans, they well tolerated the Jews as long as things were quite orderly. But as soon as things get out of hand, their whole nation as they knew it would be in jeopardy of Roman repression. So they need to get rid of Jesus. But if they get rid of him in the public during the festival, that's going to create this great outcry. It's going to create the same problem that Jesus is making by doing so many miracles and calling people to himself. So they have to get rid of him quietly. 
by stealth. The ESV reads there. And so what, that, what does that mean? They got to do it after the festival. They got to wait till the whole party's over. Everybody goes back home. Jerusalem and the surrounding Judean area is more quiet. They can dispose of him because they cannot risk the uproar. They cannot risk getting the attention of the Romans. So it sets up this question, whose plan is going to win out? We have two different agendas here. And that really follows on the question, well, who is really in control? See, Matthew has masterfully presented for us this contrast. Jesus states so matter-of-factly, here's what's going to happen, guys. Know this. I'm going to die in two days. I'm going to be killed at the height of the Passover festival in just two days. While those who are intent on murdering him, yes, they want him dead, but they have this one caveat, you must not do it in two days, no matter what you do. Again, lest we risk the blowback of Rome's heavy hand. So whose plan, whose will is going to win out? Well, of course, we know the answer. Well, Jesus' plan does, no surprise. But now you need to take stock and realize these things have yet to happen as Jesus calls them out. Even still, this was not some good guess. He's not like an excellent political analyst, taking, making calculations, trying to give the best guess on how these things are going to transpire. I think in two days I will die. That's not how this works. Because understand, his death in this way, at this time, this was no accident. His death, too, that's upcoming, this was no miscalculation that he had earlier on. Nor was him talking about him being over to be crucified. This was not the words of some discouraged, failed revolutionary. Not at all. Because see, understand this, no one takes Jesus' life. No one rips it from him. No one surprises him by stealth and steals it from him. He lays it down intentionally with all purpose. His death is intentional. It's all part of his plan that he's working to save his people, and his death is the very heart of it. As he would have told them earlier, just not long before this, John's gospel records it. This is where Jesus declares in John chapter 10, Verse 18, he says this, John 10, 18, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. You can't take my life. Why? Because it's in my power. I have it, and I'm going to lay it down when I choose for my purpose, my intention. He knows he's going to be crucified in two days. Why does he know this? Because that's when he determined to give up his life. Well, why? What for? If he's so in total control, if he's orchestrating every single event of this, why is he determined to die when he does? Because he's dying for you. That's why. Because he's dying for his sheep that look to him by faith. For again, still here in John chapter 10, Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd. And what makes him the good shepherd then? What let him tell you? This is verse 11 of John 10. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
And here, from here, Jesus contrasts the good shepherd with the hireling who abandons the sheep to the predators as they come. Because Jesus continues, verse 13, he, the hireling, flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep, but not this shepherd, not this king, not this savior. He loves the sheep. He goes on, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I laid out my life for the sheep, I love them. They are mine. I know them. I, I've purposed to set my love on them. And what's that mean? That means I'm coming to die for them because I love them. He loves the sheep. He knows the sheep. He cares for the sheep. And so he purposes, intends, orchestrates all these events to die for the sheep and so save the sheep that he loves. So none of this happens by accident. None of this takes Jesus by surprise. Rather, all of this, as we're going to see through these final three chapters in Matthew's gospel, all of this is, in, is purposeful, intentional deeds of sacrificial love. Saving love. Even if it cost him his life. Because he loves these sheep to death and back. So get this then, as we we study these next three chapters over the coming weeks, Lord willing, when he's betrayed, as he actively designs and steps into that, what is that about? That's about love for his sheep. When he's abandoned by his followers and he's left all alone, what is that about? He does that for the love of his sheep intentionally. When he's mocked and beaten, when he's pronounced guilty, when he's the only innocent one there's ever been, what is this about? Why does he not defend himself? Because he loves his sheep. He determined to spend his life for you because he loves his sheep. He didn't have to do that. Nor did this come to him by accident. It wasn't like, wow, I know that was a bummer you died, but hey, cheer up, Jesus. Something good came out of that. Not at all. This was all designed in. He came to die and lay down his life of his own volition, his own purpose, his own accord, because he loves his sheep and he knew there was no other way to save those he loves. So if you're going to raise your estimation of Jesus, you've got to go back here. I think every morning as you open your eyes, before you open your eyes, as you come to consciousness, you need to see the shepherd's love and his plan to spend his life for you. And you know there's no one worth, more worthy of our worship. Second, spend your life to show his worth. Verses 6 to 13. How are you going to raise your estimation? How are you going to raise your love for Jesus? You need to determine that I'm going to actually spend my life to show off his worth. That is, you realize, you, you need to come to reckon that the way you live, the way you spend your life, that shows to others what you prize, what you love. And in particular to our question, how little or how much you esteem Jesus. Your life is saying something about what you esteem about him. Let's spend it to show his worth. And to be sure, to go back now to Matthew 26, the woman's life that we see pictured here, her actions say something beautiful. They extol Christ. They make much of him, something that no one can question or should question, namely her esteem of Jesus. So evident she loves him. Verses 6 and 7, back to Matthew 26. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, 
A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Now, as we compare this with the other Gospels, especially going and looking at John's Gospel, we encounter something of a problem of the ordering of events, even down to particular days here. Because when John records this incident, this is from John 12, we read this. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. So what's going on here? When we compare this with John's gospel, Matthew seems to mention that there's two days and then Jesus gets anointed at Bethany. That is, in two days he'll die after that. Where John's gospel so clearly locates it six days before. What's happening here? Which is it? Well, as we carefully compare these two texts, we can safely assume and conclude that this event we see recorded here in Matthew This did take place six days before, as John stated. If you look more carefully at the passage in John, John gives you the precise date when this happens. Matthew doesn't. Note the break that happens as we move from verse 5 to verse 6. This works as like a flashback. Look at verse 6 again of Matthew 26. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, the question, of course, well, when did this when happen? When was he at Bethany at this time in particular? Technically speaking, Matthew doesn't tell us precisely when. We just assume we know when from what was mentioned earlier. But when we compare with John's gospel, he locates it so clearly to six days before. What we're reading in Matthew then, in verses 6 and following, this is a flashback. Now, why would he... Why would we have a flashback here? Why would Matthew refer to something that happened in the past a few days before and bring it to the forefront here? We find that Matthew brings this anointing, this picture of costly worship done to Jesus. He brings it to the fore now because he's setting up this strong contrast with the incident that follows afterward. So you have this extravagant worship from, we'll see, who is Mary contrasted with the stingy, selfish, betraying worship from Judas. And it's this contrast then that carries the text. Mary, John tells us, spends extravagantly on Jesus, while Judas betrays Jesus for a mere 30 silver coins. So by doing the flashback and calling our attention to this, by setting up this contrast, Matthew now foists back at us this question. What do you think about Jesus? What do you, how do you value Jesus? What do you think he's worth? Do you follow the example of Mary pouring out her life and even life savings probably for him? Or are you more like Judas, calculating the cost, bartering with what you want and even giving up Jesus. Well, what does your life say? You look at the way you live, what does that say about Jesus' worth? So with that, we turn to these two examples, and we come first to this show of lavish, costly devotion, true worship to Jesus. Look at verse 7 of Matthew 26. 
A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And you can tell from the response from the disciples that this was a shocking move. Namely because they all realized she paid such a great expense. The disciples quickly started tabulating in their mind when they saw her doing this, that that this perfume, this ointment was worth something like 300 denarii. And of course, we're all like, wow, that's a lot of money. Oh, I don't remember what a denarius is, but it is this. It's worth a single day's wage. So times that by 300, what do you have? You have a year's worth of work. What do you have? $30,000, $50,000 bottle of perfume? And it's all just being poured out in a minute on Jesus' head? That's a great price. She was spending much on him. And she does not seem to do it begrudgingly. She loves to do it. Probably giving up most of everything she had. And for what? What does this accomplish? What is actually accomplished in space and time at this moment? I mean, we hear in the Gospels that it fills the room with this delectable fragrance. Well, I'm sure that's nice, right? But is it worth it? It seems extravagant, grossly so. It's certainly not very practical. And in that way, it seems like a tremendous waste. And that seems to be the the disciples' very assessment, isn't it? Look at verses 8 and following. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. I mean, they were angry. They were bubbling over, seething with rage, saying, Why this waste? What a loss. What a poor use of resources. How impractical. And they justified their assessment with this rationale. Just think about all that could be done with the money, especially to the poor. Verse 9, for this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. I mean, you could offend one person for a whole year, Jesus. What is she doing? Or, or 300 more people in one day. What a waste. And again, from the practical side, I think you can see where the disciples are getting at. Maybe you resonate with that. To spend so much to pour it on one, I mean, the most honorable head of all. But, but to pour all that out, worth so much, when there's so many hurting and hungry people in the world around them. Not to mention, and John clues us in in his gospel, that at least in Judas's case, he actually didn't care about the poor at all. He just regretted that he was missed the chance to skim a little off the top because he was the guy who held the money bag for the disciples. So you have Judas, probably motivated mainly by greed, and then all the other disciples joining in, motivated by, what was it, jealousy? Maybe it was a sincere care for the poor. But what's very true, this woman's actions go against the grain of utilitarianism. That's the idea that the best good thing to do is what does the most good to the most people. Well, She blows that out of the water. Not her. Her good was directed at one. And the onlookers, they didn't even understand how that was any good anyways. And so the criticisms fire away at her. But Jesus won't stand for it. He immediately speaks up and defends her. 
First of all, he corrects and clarifies that you got to know, first off, guys, she's actually done a very good thing, verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. It's a, it's a noble thing. It's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's a praiseworthy thing. And I accept it, and I receive it, and it's so good. And you're trashing it. With this comment, he's saying, fellas, you're the ones in the wrong. How dare you rebuke her? You're looking at it all wrong. How could that be? we got 300 to 1 here. What's going on? See, Mary sees something here that you don't. Their supposed urgency to care for the poor, and just stop for a second, caring for the poor is a good thing. We talked about that last week with the parable of the sheep and the goats. And yet, there's something far more urgent here. A greater urgency created in particular because Jesus is with them and he won't always be. Verse 11, he reasons, For you also have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. You can only serve Jesus in this embodied personal way for a limited time. And that window's closing soon, guys, because again, I'm going to die. Do you remember that? And so it seems really that the disciples still are having problems reckoning with this truth, that their king, their savior, their Messiah is coming to Jerusalem to die. And Jesus expands on this. Look at verse 12. He's further commending the woman what she's done. Verse 12, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. I'm going to die, fellas. Come to grips with this. See, she has, she gets it, and she loves me for it. She's preparing me for that moment. See, she has come to grips with something that's so far more important, something that the disciples have missed, they've misunderstood, and at times the disciples have wanted, they don't even want to think about it, but that Jesus' mission was always to come and die. And her act to anoint him for burial shows that she gets it. She understands. And she loves him for it. Why? Because she knows she needs that death. She knows she needs that. She can see how much he loves her in coming to die for her. She knows she needs it. And she loves him for it. She cannot help but pour out whatever she can in devotion to him. And Jesus sees it back. And receives it all. He doesn't miss one drop of her devotion. And note that then. It's her act of devotion to Christ that will forever be remembered. Not the supposedly missed opportunity to help the poor. That is, while in the immediate, she receives the sharp rebuke from the the jealous and, and some greedy disciples... That's the immediate rebuke, but Mary will forever be praised and be given as the example for us all to follow as the gospel goes across the world. Verse 13, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You want to be remembered? Love Jesus and love him extravagantly. Pour out your life and devotion to him. The one who extravagantly loved you, who loved you and gave himself for you. 
Pour yourself out for him because he's worth it. What else is worth it but him? And note this, as we said, he will always remember. He doesn't forget that. He doesn't push it aside. He doesn't rebuke that, oh, what a waste. No, it came from a heart that loves him and he received it in full as that. That's what Mary realized. And that's why we're still talking about 2,000 years later, her and her love. What a contrast that is to so many supposed great movers and shakers of history that are now all forgotten. How many great kings have there been? Military leaders, generals, inventors, philanthropists. And how many great deeds have they done? And they've all been forgotten, passed away with time and with failed memories. Even those that tried and build monuments for themselves, they're later torn down or they're eroded and they're still forgotten just years later. Even the statutes that make it down to us from antiquity. So many of them, they're anonymous. We don't even know who they're of. There's no lasting memory for them. But by God's plan to extol this woman and her beautiful devotion, her memory lives on for wherever the gospel goes. Even now, 2,000 years later, and to be sure, for eternity too, she will forever be commemorated as the one of extravagant devotion and love to Jesus. But what does your life say about Jesus' worth? Will it be remembered? What does your obedience say about the worth of Jesus? What does your sacrifice say? Your expense say? Your giving say? What does your time say? What does your serving say? What does your attention to His words say about the value of Christ? Does it say he's a treasure? The one you love and live for? He's worth sacrificing for? Or does your life say, yeah, Jesus is fine. He's good. When living for him is convenient and he fits nicely in my budget and in my schedule. Does your life present Jesus to the world as something or someone worth prizing? Again, does... Your life showed Jesus to be a treasure or a trinket. Because know this, your life says something to the world. It says something about what your heart thinks about Jesus. The way you live out is just showing what's in your heart. Well, what does your life say? This woman's sacrifice said it all. And again, her loving Lord didn't miss it. Not a drop of her devotion. Finally then, and it's the flip side of this. If you're going to raise your estimation, you're going to raise your evaluation of Jesus, you need to spend your life to show his worth. But on the flip side of that, that means we, not, we cannot dare to set any limit on our devotion to him. Set no limit. Determine to set no limit on your devotion to Jesus. Verses 14 to 16. Where now we turn to Judas, who of course his estimation, his evaluation of Jesus stands worlds apart from Mary's in the previous paragraph. Verses 14 to 15. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Evidently, Judas had had enough of Jesus. Maybe Judas was finally taking to heart this whole message that Jesus had been talking about dying. I mean, again, he had As they were entering the festival, he had told them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered up to be crucified. 
And just try and reckon with that. If your hope, your expectation for your Savior was that he was going to win and conquer your enemies, namely the Romans, and liberate Israel, and then he keeps telling you, no, 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 I'm actually going to die by all of your enemies, be crucified, that's a failed dream, isn't it? His hopes were crushed. And maybe they were crushed for some time. He just hung on to the movement long enough as he could keep skimming off the top, and it would be of benefit to him. And even now, that seems impossible. And so Judas, the shrewd, financial, practical man that he was, he looks to cut his losses, get whatever he can while he still can before this whole movement crashes right down on top of him. And he's thinking, it's not going to crash down on me. I'm not going to go down with the ship. And actually, we'll see for a price. He's glad to hurry its plunge. So while Mary would give everything for Jesus, Judas is rather willing to take most anything to give up Jesus. So he steals away to find the Jewish leaders to offer to be their spy, and for a price, he'll betray his Lord. What will you give me if I deliver him? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. Is that a big amount or a small amount? Well, it's interesting to note from Exodus 21, verse 32, that the law sets the price for a killed slave at 30 pieces of silver. That's not the price for an assassination for a great king or something like this. He's only worth as much as a slave to Judas. In other words, Judas cares nothing for Jesus. Furthermore, Matthew alludes to another Old Testament text, Zechariah chapter 11. It's fascinating. I encourage you maybe this afternoon to go study it longer. We don't have time to get all the details. But to drop you into it, in that text, Zechariah, he's being a good shepherd of God's people giving God's word to God's people. However, Israel doesn't any longer want to hear God's word. They don't want Zechariah to be their shepherd. They come to detest him, the word says, as he guided them with God's word. And so what did they do? They paid him off. They bought him off. And for how much? 30 pieces of silver. Here's Zechariah 11, verse 12. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. And as a clue, the ancient Greek translation from Zechariah, when it says, and they weighed out my wages, that's a precise wording Matthew uses when he says they paid Judas 30 pieces of silver. This is certainly the text from the Old Testament Matthew had in mind. And you see the parallels, 30 pieces of silver to get God off our backs. 30 pieces of silver to get our own way. 30 pieces of silver to silence the conviction. And so in this prophetic way, history repeats itself. The Jewish leaders pay out silver pieces, 30 of them, to silence and put away their good shepherd. They don't want him anymore. And driven by greed and disappointment, Judas is more than willing to comply. You got a deal. Verse 16. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And now we've circled back to the beginning of our text. For despite whatever the Jewish leaders' intentions, despite whatever their plans and schemes, their timings and plots, the Lord's plan is the one coming to pass. Isn't that interesting? The betrayer, the evil one, who's going to do the most egregious deed in all of history, he's looking for a good time to hand Jesus over, and that good time is going to perfectly align with God's time to save his people. It's the glory of our God. The plots of the evil betrayers align perfectly with the Lord's plan to be betrayed, be crucified, be delivered up. 
And that connection is even highlighted by Matthew's word choice here in verse 16. It says, Judas sought a good time to betray Jesus. But as Jesus started to state his plan in verse 2, he uses the same word when he says that he was going to be delivered up to be crucified. Delivered up in verse 2 and betray in verse 16 are the same rendering or the different renderings of the same Greek word. The point is, the plots of the evil one to accomplish their evil plan will actually accomplish the perfect will of God to save his people, though at the expense of his son. And again, this was God's plan all along. And this is the plan, apparently, that the evil one, that Judas, the Jewish leaders, could not foresee. It was by his being given over, by that very act, God was going to save his people from their sins. We heard this prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or the ancient Greek translation reads like this. And the Lord gave him up or delivered him up for our sins. This betrayal, this delivering up, this most evil treachery proved to be the very way our sins would get paid for by his crucifying death. What is that worth to us? What price is that sacrifice of the Son of God worth? What price can you put on that? And we see from the example of Judas, the answer is, you dare not put any price on that. You you got no price. There's nothing you can give for that. But consider Judas. He was with Jesus for three years, loved and serviced by Jesus for three years. How could he do something so evil? especially to one so good and even so good to him. How could he trade Jesus for 30 coins? How could he do that? Because his resolve, his desire to follow Jesus had a limit. And by the end, it was just 30 coins. He could listen to Jesus, but only for so long. He could walk after him, but only for so long. He could trek with him only for so long, obey him only for so long until he had to see some payout. And then he met his limit. And again, it turned out it was 30 coins. So you see, every sin we commit, that we commit, is something like this betrayal in that moment. Trading Jesus for whatever sin and pleasure we can get instead. We walk with Jesus for a time until we've read our limit. And some of our limits, it's, it's only five coins. Or some it's 10, some it's 30. I'll give you five seconds of lust for Jesus I'll give you one angry outburst at your kids to justify yourself. I'll give you that for Jesus. I'll let you bend the truth. And I'll let you look good for 10 minutes if you hand over Jesus, if you lay down your commitment to Jesus in that moment. Every time we're bartering our Savior, I'll take that sin instead, instead of Him. We're selling Him. And for what? For why? Should we be rewarded more handsomely than we've already been? Following Jesus shouldn't be this hard. I mean, what are we wanting? Well, to be clear, whatever it is, is it really better than Him? And what He's given us? Is it worth more than Him? And if brothers and sisters, if you're really struggling this morning, and I get it because of our sinfulness, but brothers and sisters, you got to go back and you got to look hard at this cross. Do not lose sight of the price He paid 
And so determine your devotion, your commitment to him cannot have any limit. Don't even let that enter your mind because there's no one thing, there's no one who is so good, so gracious, so worthy, so loving as your Christ. You can't trade him for anything. You will lose on the deal every time. Because note this, whatever you trade him for, it will never love you like he did. Finally, note this. Even when he purposed to come and die for your sins, he knew you would stumble and fail at times. He knew it all, and he still came anyways. And now he's just calling us back. Confess. Know my mercy. Know I paid for those sins too. And raise up in your heart love for me again. Treasure him. Live out your whole life in devotion and thanks to him. As we're told in Colossians, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why? Because we give thanks to God the Father through him. Let's do that to his praise. Let's pray together. Savior, you showed your love, defeated our sin, and poured out your blood. And so we praise you, lamb that was slain. And in response, the only worship you're worthy of is that we pour out our lives to proclaim what a Savior. Do that for your glory. Do that for the sake of your name. Do that by giving us fresh assurance of your mercy. Do that by making us faithful. To the glory of Christ we pray. Amen.